One of the most remarkable stories in the Bible is that of Joseph, the 11th of 12 brothers born to Jacob, the patriarch. Joseph was especially loved by his father. If we recall back to the love story that existed between Jacob and his wife Rachel, she was really the one that he loved, even though he was deceived into marrying her sister Leah. Once he began fathering children, it was Leah, along with two other maids, who began to bear him children, but his beloved wife Rachel could not. Finally, she does bear a son, and that son is Joseph, and he really becomes the apple of his father's eye. Of course, his older brothers become jealous of him, and one day they plot to kill him. On the day of his demise, one of the brothers, Reuben, convinces the others not to kill him, but instead to sell him as a slave to the Midianites who are passing through the region. In order to remove the possibility of his father looking for the son, they remove Joseph's multicolored coat, a gift from his father, and they drench it in goat's blood and present it to Jacob and tell him that his son has been killed. Well, Jacob absolutely falls apart. He becomes destroyed and falls to pieces. Meanwhile, Joseph, his son, is on his way to Egypt. In the next scene, we find that Joseph has been enslaved in Potiphar's house, working his way into the trust of his master, but then Potiphar's wife uh, wrongfully accuses him of assaulting her, and he's then sent to prison for several years. But the Lord makes a way for Joseph to serve the Pharaoh by interpreting his dream. More than this, he's able to predict the upcoming famine in Egypt. Of course, in the dream, he realizes that there's going to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, and because of this wisdom, the Pharaoh appoints him to the number two position over all the affairs of Egypt, and he has effectively uh, saves them from destruction. But Joseph has already lost so much. He's already spent 13 years as a slave. He hasn't seen his family or his home for the entire time he's been gone. And then one day, a band of brothers arrive in Egypt looking for provisions. In the providence of God, they are Joseph's estranged brothers, and they now have to come to him for help. Otherwise, they would all starve to death and perish. But now, at this point, they don't recognize him. Joseph doesn't let himself be known, even though he knows who they are. In the drama of the events, Joseph then puts his brothers through a series of tests. They put him, he puts them through the ringer, trying to draw out their repentance. Twice he frames them for stealing, he throws them in jail. Then he calls for the youngest brother, Benjamin, to be brought to the palace. Now the brothers are terrified. Their father has already lost one beloved son, but Benjamin is the youngest son. More than this, Benjamin is the son that Rachel birthed in her death just before she passed away. So, we have this great pressure, this, uh, this terrible uh, conviction. The brothers are about to come clean about their sin. They're under the, the gauntlet, if you will. And once he sees their repentance, Joseph then reveals his identity to their long-lost, as their long-lost brother, the one who they wanted to murder, but they sold into slavery instead. Now, at this point, once this revelation has come out that he is their long-lost brother, he's not dead, he's actually now the ruler of all Egypt under the Pharaoh, this is an opportunity. He could have enacted his revenge. He has the position, he has the power, he has the means. After all, they hated him, they wanted to kill him. 
They had ripped him away from his father. They had consigned him to 13 years of brutal slavery in Egypt. He could have thrown them all in prison for the rest of their lives. He could have had them all killed. But what does he do? He invites them to dinner, and he spoils them. He moves then the entire family to Egypt in order to take care of them. And then he brings the father, his father. And when he brings the father, they, you know, there is a, a reconciliation. There is a, a, a restoration. And then his father passes away. He dies. And the brothers then, that's at the point where they begin to fear, fear retaliation. Now that, now that our father is gone, he's certainly going to get us back for what we did to him. And yet he tells them in Genesis 50, verse 20, Do not be afraid. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And then he he throws himself on the providence of God and the loving kindness of God, and he does something remarkable. He forgives his brothers. He forgives them. Now, you might be saying to yourself, after all of that sin, I don't know if I could forgive like that. I don't know if I would do that, but the Lord desires that we seek to understand what it means to forgive others and to do here what Joseph did. And so we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22 today, and we're going to talk about forgiveness. See, Matthew 18 has progressed gradually and naturally in its teaching Jesus begins the chapter by teaching the disciples about the nature of what it means to follow him, that we should be humble and dependent and faithful like children. He calls us his little ones, and he, then he alters course a little bit, and he warns about the danger of causing any of these little ones to stumble into sin. He protects his little ones. However, he then notes when his children do sin and do wander away, he desires to see them rescued. In fact, the Lord then deputizes the church to go after sinning brothers and sisters. And we spent several weeks talking about that. And we are to do so not to bring about their ruin. We're not there to blow people up, but rather to restore them. And yet the Lord has a process by which he wants us to operate And we read about this in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Just to refresh your memory, look at this with me. Jesus tells the church, tells the disciples here, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, uh, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Lord is serious about believers working hard to reconcile sinning members, leading them toward repentance, facilitating forgiveness for their repentance. When a Christian sins, it is, it's not something we can overlook if it's not a minor sin. Now, there are sins that we can overlook. God doesn't overlook sins. God uh, certainly provides a sacrifice to pay for all of our sins, but there is a point in which minor sins, we as other sinners, can extend grace and, and forbearance to other people. Someone hurts your feelings, you don't have to go after them and bring them through church discipline. You can overlook. Love does cover a multitude of sins. We're talking about lateral here. 
Our standing before God, he demands perfection. That's why we need Christ. But this is in terms of reconciliation in the body. But things that are not minor, not minor sins, they do have to be confronted. In love, you are to tell your brother or sister that they are in sin and call for their repentance. And when they confess their sins, you are to offer forgiveness. First, you offer them the forgiveness promised to them in the gospel. You can tell them, because of your confession, because of your repentance, God, through Jesus Christ, forgives you. He can do so because of the sacrifice of his son. And then, if the sin is against you, you can offer them your own forgiveness and be reconciled back to them. But in verse 21, Peter enters into the scene, because all this point we've been talking, we've been hearing from Jesus, Peter jumps in, and he says in verse 21, it says, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, this is a valid question. This is a question for the ages, isn't it? After all, is there not wisdom in being discerning? We want to be discerning because this process of of, uh, reconciling and forgiving and forgiving, this process could be potentially abused by those who want to keep on sinning only to go back and seek a cheap and easy forgiveness later. Well, if I can just say I'm sorry, I guess I'm good to go, right? And we experience this on some human level. A person does the same thing over and over again. They come, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. All right. And then the next day they do it again. We, we don't want that cycle to continue. I mean, shouldn't be, there be a limit to that kind of forgiveness? Ancient rabbis actually thought so. In fact, there is an old rabbinic teaching on forgiveness, and this is what the old rabbis would say. They said that a sin could be forgiven up to three times, but a fourth was beyond forgiveness. So someone, you know, they sin against you, you forgive them. They do it again, you forgive them. You do it three times, you forgive them. They do it a fourth time, listen, we're done here. I've already forgiven you three times, you're done. Now on a human level, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? It seems like you don't want to have yourself dragged through the mud. We want to, there's, there's a limit to how far I'm going to go. But here's the thing, we're not seeking to understand human forgiveness. We're seeking to understand divine forgiveness. We want to understand the mind of God, don't we? How does God want us to forgive? See, the rabbis say, forgive up to three times. Three times and you're good. But by this time, Peter, Peter's getting wise. If you notice the progression in Matthew's gospel, Peter and the other disciples are starting to figure it out. They're learning from Jesus, and you can see them growing. Peter is catching on to the fact that Jesus is different than other rabbis. He's starting to learn that Jesus is offering something different. So verse 21 Peter says to him, Lord, how, much, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Ah, he's getting wise, right? Seven times, that seems pretty reasonable. Peter more than doubles the traditional rabbinic allotment for forgiveness. They say three, I say seven, Lord, does that sound good? We can forgive seven times, that seems pretty generous. But why does Peter offer to forgive seven times. Why not six or eight or ten, right? Why does he say seven? Well, there's actually been a couple theories behind why Peter offers seven. Now, there's a level of speculation here, but I want to just bring this to your mind to get you thinking about this seven number here. In Genesis 4.15, the Lord warns against anyone who would seek to retaliate against Cain for the murder of his brother Abel. 
The Lord says to the people, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So the Lord is offering sort of a a form of reverse forgiveness in a sense. He's declaring sevenfold vengeance on those who would take vengeance on Cain for his sin. You see that? It's not that he's forgiving Cain seven times, but he's saying that I will enact vengeance sevenfold on the person who doesn't forgive Cain for his sin. So there's a sevenfold idea there. In a similar vein, in Leviticus 26.18, it promises a penalty over sinfulness and disobedience. The Lord is declaring, I will punish you seven times for your sins. In terms of the, death of the depth of punishment, the Lord declares them, if you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sin. So in a different vein, he's offering here sort of a, a sevenfold punishment uh, for sin. So it's, a, again, a sevenfold idea in regards to sin and repentance, but that's another sevenfold concept there. It's possible that Peter is seeing sort of an inverse to that because, again, the Lord is making all things new. They're, they're used to reading something in the Torah and the Lord then turning that on its head in the New Covenant, You've heard it said, but I say to you. So it could have been something of of the regard of, okay, Lord, you've promised to punish sevenfold for sins, but now you're talking about something new. We're not pouring new wine into old wineskins here. So if the Lord is offering a sevenfold punishment for sin, are you then offering a sevenfold forgiveness? There's some, there could be something to that, because again, we see this seven number over and over again. Seven is a symbol of perfection in the Old Testament, or in the Bible, I should say. So is there something to this? Is Peter saying, how often should we forgive uh, to be forgiven, Lord? Seven times should we forgive other people? But look how Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Jesus does not advocate for Peter's more than generous sevenfold forgiveness plan. He has something else in mind entirely. Now, Bible translators are divided over how to render the original Greek text here. And it's not that it's super difficult, but there's just two ways to read the Greek words that are noted here. The, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, the ESV, the NIV, they render this usage of the words here as 77 times. So they see the seven and the times seven. They're thinking 77 times. While the New American Standard, the King James, and other versions render this 70 times seven. So that would actually be 490 times. So which is it? Is it 77 times or 490 times? Well, the point becomes very clear when we realize the context of what Jesus is doing here. Scholars universally acknowledge that Jesus' point is not about quantity. Rather, it's about the quality of forgiveness. Because nowhere in the Gospels do we see Jesus keeping score. He doesn't say, okay, this is 76 times, brother. So 77, that's the end of it. He doesn't say, okay, 490 times, and then the next one, that's it, we're done. He never, he never does anything like that. Because he offers forgiveness to long-time sinners. There are those who come to him with just mountains and mountains of sins, and he keeps on offering forgiveness. Perpetual transgressions by noted sinners, and he's offering forgiveness for their sins. Jesus is abundant in mercy and abundant in forgiveness. 
In fact, he tells the disciples in Luke 17, 3 and 4, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And then he says this, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So now we see this point here, even if they come to you seven times in one day, forgive. And you might be thinking here, well, Lord, that's today, and what about tomorrow? That's 14, the next day's 21, and 20. You keep on going, right? What's his point? The point is to develop a heart that forgives continually. That's the point. It's not 77 or 490 or whatever it is. The point is, be a person who offers forgiveness. After all, 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says that biblical love keeps no record of wrong suffered. Imagine if we kept a, a record with our marriage or with our kids. I mean, 490 times, I mean, in a, in a, a 50 or 60 year marriage, you're going to eat that up pretty fast, aren't you? I mean, I'm kind of being serious that we do. We have a lifetime and we sin against each other, we seek forgiveness, and if you don't forgive and if you're not restored, you're going to have a miserable couple decades with this other person. And so we already see that we can't, you can't get to that number and call it good. It's not three, it's not seven, it's not even 77. There's a, there's a heart that desires to continually forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. That's the quality of the heart there. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. But what does it mean to forgive? How do we truly forgive? Because it's my conviction that most people don't understand forgiveness. I firmly believe that. And beyond just the general populace worldwide, I think even Christians, I think we struggle to comprehend true forgiveness. But be encouraged, beloved, God desires that we understand what it means to forgive. For starters, we need to look at the New Testament word that's used for forgiveness. And this word here that's used in this uh, gospel passage here is ephemi. And it means literally to send forth or send away or let go. See, here's the important point. Every sin incurs a debt. Every sin incurs a debt. In our humanness, we try to minimize our sins. We're very good at pointing out the depth of sin of other people, but when it comes to ourselves, we don't really plunge the depths of our own hearts to really understand how sinful they really are. We treat sins like they're little tiny accidents or character flaws or, or just unfortunate mistakes. We, we want to think lightly of our sins because we don't want to deal with the guilt and the shame that it's associated with it. But the Bible speaks of sins as transgressions against God's holy law. And every sin requires some kind of payment in order to satisfy the debt. If you read Leviticus, and I would encourage you to do so. Leviticus can be a challenging book if you don't have the context. But I'll tell you, you walk away from Leviticus understanding one major thing, that God treats sin very seriously. The seriousness of sin, the holiness of God is displayed very clearly in Leviticus. But Leviticus, you read, God prescribes very elaborate systems of offering sacrifices for sin. I mean, it's exhaustive. 
It's not only the willful, intentional sins. He even has methods of offering uh, sacrifice and atonement for unintentional sins. Even if you don't mean to sin, but you transgress, you have to go make sacrifice. Again, every sin incurs a debt, a debt that must be paid. We have to get that in our minds. My sins are not just nothing. I can't just do whatever I want and assume it's going to be just fine. Even if no one knows about my sins, they still incur a debt. God still knows and they're still grievous in God's eyes. However, the gospel offers a way of removing that debt from the sinner. That's why the gospel is so important. Christ makes a payment. That's what atonement is. Atonement is payment. It's a payment that is made in his own blood. Well, why blood? Well, because life exists in the blood. It's the very force of life of a creature. Every creature, for the most part, has some level of life force coursing through its veins. You take that away and the life is gone. The Old Testament had trained the believers there to understand that it's the only true payment for sin was death of an innocent, the shedding of its blood. Hebrews 9.22 affirms that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So forgiveness is attained by this payment, this sacrifice of blood. See again, sins aren't nothing. They are deadly transgressions for God, for which God requires costly payment. Someone or something has to give its life. But we know that animal sacrifices do not ultimately pay for sins, and not even human, sinful human sacrifice could accomplish this. God never asks for human sacrifice. And you're thinking, what about Abraham? God did not have him carry that out, right? He stopped him. It was a test. God does not desire human sacrifice on those terms. Only Christ's perfect sacrifice can atone for sin. And remember, Christ gave himself up willingly as a sacrifice, the only one who can. But Christ can also resurrect himself, and he did. And so when Christ makes his offering on the cross, the sins of his people are paid for because the debt is paid, and now we receive forgiveness. The punishment is now removed and remitted, and by the way, that debt, that that uh, transgression has been removed forever. Does not the Bible say, the Lord say, as far as the east is from the west, I have removed your transgressions from you? We read in Colossians 2.14, therefore, the certificate of our debt has been canceled. Christ has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so, when a Christian's sins are forgiven, a complete debt is paid, and it's now gone forever. It's gone forever, beloved. You need to hear that. Your sins, if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, if He has saved you and redeemed you, your sins, your transgressions, your payment that you owe to the Lord has been removed forever. This is why Jesus' last words were, it is finished. The Greek, tetelestai, literally means paid in full because His death offered a full payment and full forgiveness. And see, that's how God forgives us, beloved. He pays our debt through the atoning blood of Christ. And this becomes crucial in understanding the command in Ephesians 4.32, which I just read a few minutes ago. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other, what's the connection? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So if we're to understand how to forgive each other, we have to understand how God forgives us. How does God forgive us? He does so by removing our sin debt and paying it himself. He pays our debts in Christ. And so this is how we are to do it as well. Again, every sin incurs a debt. And most of these debts are owed to God because most of us don't know all of our sins. Most of our sins are not necessarily against other people. Most of our sins are against our own heart in transgression of the law of God. So most of our repentance and forgiveness is going to be vertical. But there is quite a bit that is done horizontally here. But the sin debts that are against us, we are told to forgive And so, to forgive others, we are bearing the cost of their sins against us with a view to removing it. But remember, somebody has to pay. Again, sin incurs a debt which has to be paid. So here's how it works. Either the sinner can pay it themselves, that's called justice. When you pay your own debts, that's justice. But if your sins and your debt is paid for you, and someone else removes it, that's called forgiveness. I remember I was watching the news one time and there was a big push by a lot of students in this country to try to abolish all student loan debt. And this is even a battle raging right now. Now, I'm not going to get political, so don't hear me go there. But I'll never forget that there was a, an interview on the news where there was a young student. I actually felt kind of bad for them, but they, they were talking about how they want free college. And the news commentator says, well, uh, college costs something. Who's going to pay for it? And they were kind of stuck like a deer in headlights, and they said, well, we, we just want it to be gone. And he says, yeah, I know, but, but everything costs money. Like, your education costs something. Who's going to pay for it? And they didn't have an answer. And that's what happens, I think, with us, that we sin, and we don't think it costs anything. And the Lord is essentially saying, well, who's going to pay for your sins? And you go, well, I don't know. Is it going to be you? And you say, uh, I don't know. Well, that's justice. You owe a debt to God. And so if God were to enact his justice on you and only his justice, you would pay for your sins forever in hell. And yet, God can still be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Christ. He can satisfy his justice by making Christ, who offers himself freely, to pay for our sins. And then he offers us forgiveness. You see how that works? He pays for us, and therefore his justice is upheld. This is also, incidentally, why it's impossible to forgive yourself. That's a bumper sticker. That's a slogan I hear all the time. That's that's the, the slogan of popular culture right now. To forgive yourself means that you forgive the debts that you incur. That's impossible. How do you do that? Now, I believe in in all graciousness here that most people use that phrase because they're referring to the fact that they need to walk in the forgiveness that they have received. If someone forgives you and you just don't accept it and you kind of live in the guilt and shame of it, the admonition is, no, walk in that forgiveness. If If you've been forgiven, then be forgiven. That's how Christians should understand that. If you've sinned and God has forgiven you, don't keep on going back and say, oh, Lord, keep on forgiving me, keep on forgiving me. It's been forgiven. Walk in that. 
But culture will say, and I would even say the, the doctrine of demons says, you have to forgive yourself in order to avoid confessing your sins and avoid seeking forgiveness. That's wrong. This lends me or leads me to the issue that those who never seek forgiveness for their sins, that's a huge problem. By not repenting and not seeking forgiveness, you're essentially demanding that the other person against whom you've sinned is going to pay that debt themselves. When you don't go to them and confess, when you don't go to them and seek uh, forgiveness and demonstrate repentance, you are saddling the other person and forcing them to bear your sin burden against them. You're demanding that they be okay with it when deep down they can't be. Why? Well, because they've been wounded. The sin against another person, that hurts. It creates pain, sorrow, loss. You steal money from somebody and you say, well, I'm, I'm forgiving myself, so it's all good. They're still out. They're still under, aren't they? It costs them loss. It costs them anger. It costs them heartache. And to force them to carry all of it because you don't want to repent and ask for forgiveness will ultimately lead them to either despair or to bitterness. And now we begin to see sins are piled up on top of sins. Because when a person who has been sinned against is unwilling or unable to forgive, it leads them then to a sinful response. They become then resentful or bitter, or they seek to retaliate, or they seek revenge. And now by your lack of confession, you commit a double sin Because now in your hardness of heart, you're putting a stumbling block in front of them and you're causing one of Christ's little ones to stumble. You see how that works? You are bringing a reproach against them because you're forcing them to respond to you in negative ways. And Matthew 18.6 says, Woe to that person who causes another one of his little ones to stumble. And so our lack of repentance, our lack of seeking forgiveness, creates a cascade of problems for other believers. And so if you have sinned against a brother or sister, don't ignore it. Don't downplay it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't forgive yourself. No, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to the Lord And then when you go to your brother or sister, don't just say, I'm sorry you feel this way. That's not confession. That's shoving your burden back onto them. Instead, name your sins specifically and ask them to forgive you. I'm sorry I hurt you. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. There's something about those words. It's different than, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Or, hey, you know, You know, I kind of had a bad day or whatever it is. Oh, don't worry about it. That kind of language doesn't facilitate reconciliation, beloved. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then when you hear the words, I forgive you, what does it do? It releases a burden, doesn't it? But if you don't do that, you keep the burden on them. Again, when someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness and you are able to forgive them, tell them, I forgive you. When you do this, it lifts the burden off their shoulders. I've seen it physically. Because here's the thing, sin weighs you down. 
Read the Psalms. David talks about it all the time. It wastes away. Sin and guilt wastes away at the body. It gives you sleepless nights. It, it cramps your posture. You start to feel heavy and burdened, and your stomach is in knots, and you have anxiety, your heart palpitations. I mean, all these things, all the, the physical ramifications of sin and debt and guilt, when you tell a person, I forgive you, I love you, you can watch them, their burden is lifted. Their eyes perk up. Maybe they have a tear in their eye, but they smile. Their posture changes. They sigh in relief. Oh, thank you. Thank you for forgiving me. It lifts a burden off of another person. And so unburden them, beloved. Unburden them. Encourage them. Tell them that you love them. Choose to remember their sins no more. Now, you might not ever forget the incident. Our memories are long. We won't forget the incident. But you can choose to forgive them and remove the guilt. Colossians 3.13 commands us, listen to this, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. And again, what is the basis of this? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Forgive like God forgives. He's the standard. Yeah, but they're not forgiving me. Don't look left and right. He's the standard. If God forgives you, then you should forgive others as well. Can you imagine God saying to us, I forgive you, but I just can't forget? What would that do? Oh, my goodness. Or maybe this, it may take a while, but I'll forgive you eventually. If God said that, that would rip my heart out. Well, how long, Lord? Or, I just can't forgive you this time. That's like a stake through the heart. Can you imagine the the Lord telling us that? Is that ever what he says? No. We never, ever see an instance of that when forgiveness is offered in the Scriptures. It is total. It is complete. Seventy times seven? Four hundred ninety times? Nope. He forgives and forgives, and he keeps forgiving, and he keeps on loving, and he keeps on bearing with us. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, keep on forgiving, keep on bearing with others, keep on loving them. Why? Because that's how God in Christ has forgiven you. And some may ask, well, can I forgive a person who hasn't repented? That's a tricky question, isn't it? What if they don't seek forgiveness? Can you forgive them? The answer is yes. Now, There won't be true reconciliation because you have something that's in between you and them that they have brought in and they won't won't confess. But they still have to deal with the Lord. That's between them and God at that point. But you, you can forgive them from your heart. You can release that burden inside your own heart. And in doing so, you are then removing all bitterness and all wrath, and all anger, and all malice, and all revenge. Isn't that what the Bible tells us to do? Don't let that fester in your heart. Let that go. Remove all of that. And if you have those things in your heart against them because they've sinned against you, bring that to the Lord. Lord, please forgive me. I have bitterness toward my brother. He hurt me terribly, and I'm just so angry I could punch my fist through a wall. Lord, forgive me of my bitterness. Help me to remove that. I don't want to carry bitterness. 
And by God's grace, he will remove that. Now, if you do so, you can sleep with a clear conscience. You can go to bed and know that God has forgiven you, and so therefore you can forgive others. And that's what Romans 12 tells us. Romans 12, 17 through 21, he says, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We have a sense of justice, don't we? They hurt me, I hurt them. And for good measure, I'll hurt them a little bit more. That's how we think. That's what Americans do. We get our, our pound of flesh, don't we? But the Bible says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you fight against the evil and the wickedness of hardness of heart and sinful transgression? You fight with compassion. You fight with conviction. You fight with forgiveness. You say, you know what, I'm not going to give you free rent in my head. I'm going to remove this burden. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to be tender-hearted toward you because I don't want to carry this around. And I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to sin against the Lord. Does this mean that forgiveness will be easy? No. In fact, forgiveness is costly. 1 Peter 5, 7, however, tells us to cast all of our cares onto Christ because He cares for us. So you take all of that burden You take all of that bitterness and frustration and hostility and hurt and pain and you lay it onto Christ. And you say, Lord, I can't carry this anymore. I don't want it. Please take this from me. And you give it to Him and hand it over. And you trust that He knows how to carry. And if justice has to be meted out, He will do it. We carry it sometimes because we're worried. I don't want to forget what they did to me. He knows. And not only can He bring about justice, but He can also affect repentance, can't He? He can change hearts. He can change minds. So go to the one who can bring about repentance. Plead with Him, Lord, change their heart so that they come back and apologize. But even if they don't, Lord, I don't want to carry this anymore. Cast your cares on Christ because He cares for you. Go to Him with your burdens. Go to Him with your hurts. Ask Him to help you. And more than this, ask Him, Lord, help me to forgive my brother or my sister. I want to forgive him, Lord. You know what He's going to say? When you go to him and ask him to unburden you and to help me to forgive those other people, it's something like this. Remember all the sins that I've forgiven. That sobers us real quick. When we think about all the sins that God in Christ has forgiven, and I think about my own life and sin after sin and transgression and the words that I've said, and the deeds that I've done, and the thoughts in my heart, 
when I see the mountain of my own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God, and I see that entire mountain lifted up off the ground and expunged and removed in the blood of Christ, then I look at my brother or sister who sinned against me and I say, I can forgive. And so look at your own life, your own sinfulness, because Christ has paid for all of our sins. And to answer the previous question, can I offer forgiveness for those who haven't apologized or repented? Well, think about this. Christ has forgiven even the sins you've forgotten about. He's forgiven the sins you haven't even confessed yet. He's forgiven the sins that you haven't even committed yet. So is it possible to forgive when people don't ask for forgiveness? Yes, it is. He's done it. And if Christ is willing to forgive us all of our sins, then should we not also extend forgiveness to those who've sinned against us? He forgave us not because we deserved it, not because we were owed it. He forgave freely because of His loving kindness to us. Because of His tenderheartedness and His mercy and His grace He loved us even when we were enemies. He reconciled us, the Father, by the death of His Son and made us friends and adopted children. And we can't forgive. And so, give your heart over to Christ. That's the key. Give your heart to Christ The Bible says, pray for those who've hurt you. Pray for them. Because people hurt others when they themselves are hurting. Pray for them. Pray that God would grant them repentance. But then pray also for yourself. Pray for the sins that you have committed. Lord, forgive me my abundant sins. Lord, help me remove the log from my own eye. And then help me to remove the speck from my brother's eye, if it's your will. Well, what if we just can't forgive others? What if we're stuck on that? That's one of the things I hear pastorally all the time, all the time, all the time, is people who are just stuck and they they can't move past it. They can't forgive. What if you can't forgive? Or worse, what if you won't forgive? We're going to talk about that next time, but until that time, I would encourage you in preparation, read Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. Read that this week if you're struggling with forgiveness, and we'll talk about it next time. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are a people who are stubborn and stiff-necked oftentimes. Lord, especially, I even think culturally, as Americans, I think we really struggle because we, we want our pound of flesh. We want to see the other guy suffer. We want to see the other person dragged through the mud. It, it's a cultural sin, I think, but it's also a very human sin. We want to retaliate. We want to see our own justice enacted. But Lord, we read the Scriptures and we read them in their entirety and we see that that's just not your way. You are the just judge. You are the one who on the last day 
will render a guilty verdict to all those who have not repented, and you will render all punishment according to those things that they've done. But Lord, that is not for us. We are not God. We are not to be standing in judgment over other people. And yet, Lord, in our hardness of heart and my sinfulness, that's where I want to stick myself. But Lord, have mercy and forgive that. And Father, I I earnestly pray, as we've been walking through this very healing exposition of Matthew 18, and Lord, I believe that Matthew 18 is a gift that you've given to this church right now, in this season of our life as a church, as a body, as individuals, as families. You've given us Matthew 18 as a blessed gift to teach us gently as a loving Father, how to reconcile, how to confront brothers and sisters who are in sin, how to do it gently and graciously, how to restore them, how to forgive them, how to be forgiven, how to love each other. Lord, this is so desperately needed right now. And Lord, I pray for your saints, your beloved children, your little ones, That for all the hurts that we carry, all the broken relationships that we have, I pray that you would sovereignly work in those quiet moments, in those times when we're in anguish and struggling with forgiveness and struggling with repentance, that you would work and convict us of our sins and motivate us to seek to reconcile, motivate us to love each other and forgive as you have forgiven us. Lord, we see so clearly that forgiveness is central to the gospel. And so as gospel people, Lord, we must forgive. And so I I plead with you, help us to forgive one another because you have so beautifully forgiven us. I pray for all of this for your church In Jesus' name, amen.